You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Good morning. So thankful to be back here at uh, Hope Bible Church in uh, Oakville. Open up your Bibles to John uh, chapter 9. I want to give you a little bit of an update about... um, uh, Our church up there in Mississauga, a year ago, uh, this Sunday, uh, we had our first service in a brand new building just 15 minutes south of where we originally planted in Brampton. Now we're in North Mississauga. And uh, in sort of a a rare situation, we managed to reduce our services from three services to do, but increase our attendance by two or 300 people on a weekend. So we're really thankful for uh, God's uh, provision there. And uh, Lindsay and I were here for your 15th anniversary uh, a, couple of, a couple of weeks ago, and we're looking forward. Our church is going to have uh, their 10-year anniversary this fall, and, um, and, and we're going to be changing our name to uh, Hope Church Mississauga. And so we're really excited about that. Um, yeah, very thankful for that. I'm not sure if we're going to go with hope saga You know, Hopeville works. But one of the things we're sort of learning is nothing goes with Mississauga. And... Um, uh, also, we're involved in, uh, in planting a church. Uh, so one of the churches that you guys have planted is now a church planting church. And so Hope Church, a Toronto North, meeting just south of, of Yorkdale Mall, uh, has been meeting as a core group for the last uh, four or five uh, Sunday mornings. They've got about 75 people there. They're getting ready for a public launch this fall. So be, pr- be uh, uh, praying for them. And the exciting thing is that, is that in... Uh, in planting this church, we're partnering with, with this church, with uh, Toronto West and Niagara, Brantford, York Region, and Newmarket. All of these churches are coming together. This is the new Great Commission Collective cohort togetherness model of, uh, of church planting. And I, I, just, I just want to express on behalf of our elders and our church how thankful we are for this church. We wouldn't be able to be in the building where we are if it weren't for the generosity and the vision and, and, the, and the guidance and the help that this church was able to give us. We wouldn't be planting a new church if it weren't for uh, the elders and leaders and staff of this church. We're so grateful for all that uh, God uh, has done and continues to do, and we are trusting him uh, for more. So John uh, chapter uh, 9. John chapter 9 is an incredible uh, story. It's, It's a unique story um, in, in any of uh, the Gospels, it makes me uh, think of this uh, song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. Say this next part with me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You see, that, that song is so powerful. It's, it, it's, it's so rich, uh, the, that that second stanza that you just uh, said with me, you know, the first part, I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's the, that's the, those are the words of the father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. My son was lost, and now he's found. And, and that is a, one of the metaphors that we use to describe what it means to become a Christian. I was lost, but now I'm, I'm found. And then that, the, the last part of that stanza that says, I was blind, but now I see. That these, are, these are the words that are taken from a man who had been born blind that Jesus healed in John chapter 9. And so we're going to look at the miracle of, of, of sight that, that Jesus performed that dramatically transformed this man's life. But we are also going to look at the metaphor 
that, that we use to understand what it means for us to be spiritually blind, but for Jesus uh, to open our eyes. And in order for Jesus to open our eyes, we're going to need his spirit to do that. Amen? And so I'm going to ask that, uh, that, that God the Father and the... Um, by the grace of his son, would send us his spirit right now. So Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. Lord, I'm so thankful to be here. And uh, Lord, we've already uh, lifted our voices to sing your praise. And God, I pray right now that we would hear your voice uh, speaking to us through your word. And so God, I pray that uh, you would do what only you can do, that you would supernaturally, God, speak to our hearts, that you would supernaturally open eyes of those who are blind, and God, that we would uh, marvel at all that you are and all that, you're, and all that you have done and all that you are doing. So God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name, amen, amen. We've got 41 verses to work through here, so I'm going to jump, jump right in. Here's point number one. We're going to look at this story from three different angles or vantage points. The first one is this, the blind man's miraculous transformation, the blind man's miraculous transformation. It says in chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It says here that, that they encountered this blind man as he, was, uh, as he passed by. Jesus had just left the temple. He was there during the Feast of Booths, and uh, he got into an argument with the Pharisees. And at the end of the argument, uh, Jesus... Uh, gave a seemingly innocuous statement, but, but, but was, was loaded with, with meaning. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And in saying before Abraham was, he was declaring that he was somehow pre-existent, that, that he existed before, even before the days of Abraham. And then he said, it was sort of an awkwardly phrased statement in Greek, before Abraham was, and he just said, I am. And, but there was no I am, like I am what? You are what? He just said, I am. But the, the Pharisees immediately knew what he meant because God's personal name, going all the way back to the burning bush and Moses, God's personal name is I Am. Yahweh, Jehovah, Y-H-W-H, the Tetragrammaton. So if you look at verse 59, as it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. They thought that Jesus was committing blasphemy in this moment because they didn't believe that he was God in the flesh. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I don't know. That's one instant replay. I want to, you know, have Jesus break down in the video room in heaven. Uh, but I, I have no idea how that happened. But, but he managed to hide from them. But as he passed by, his disciples are intrigued. They want to have a theological discussion about someone that they see who was is, who is born blind. And the question is, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? You see, the disciples had an oversimplified and narrow understanding of sin and its relationship to sickness and suffering. In a general sense, all sin is the result of all sickness and suffering. I mean, Genesis chapter 3 makes it really clear that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and our, our planet became cursed. The whole cosmos is is. is is not functioning the way it was supposed to function. Their thorns and thistles grow in the ground and it's difficult to, to, to produce a crops and people sin against one another and harm one another and Adam and Eve got sick and died. A, a vent, we all die. 
And so in a general sense, all sin is the cause of all sickness and suffering. But Jesus' disciples here want to draw a direct connection, not in general terms, but in, with specificity. They want to say, what specific sin committed by this man or his parents has led to this man's specific sickness? These, uh, these disciples, they hold the same theology of Job's friends. I mean, for 37 chapters, Job's friends are trying to make that connection between here's your sickness, here's the suffering that you're going through, Job. There must be a reason why you you must be responsible for this in some way, shape, or form. The whole message of the book of Job is to break that line. It's to, is to say that God has a greater purpose for our sickness and our suffering. Now, if we find ourselves personally suffering, if we find ourselves personally unwell, that is a time for us to introspectively and humbly come before the Lord and say, God, are you trying to get my attention for something? God, is it... I, I'm all ears right now. Isn't, isn't it true that we are listening more intentively than when we're suffering, right? And so that is a time for us to personally do that. But listen, we, we enter into territory where we are not welcome when we look at someone else's life and try to draw a connection between their suffering or their sickness and sin. Look at, how, look at what Jesus says. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, we can take great comfort in what Jesus says here. That suffering is never pointless. That that illness is, is, is never gratuitous. It's never meaningless. There is always a purpose. Jesus says, listen, this is not, this is not a direct, direct connection between this man's sin or, or his parents' sin. This is happening so that the works of God might be displayed in him. A spoiler alert, the works of God in this case is a miracle uh, that Jesus performs. This guy is not going to be blind for much longer. And God allows sin, allows sickness and suffering to happen in our life so that His works can be revealed. Sometimes it happens in the John 9 way, which is a miracle. Sometimes it happens in the 2 Corinthians 12 way, where Paul talks about having this thorn in his flesh, and he's crying out to God. How can I be spared from this? When am I going to get some relief, Lord? And what does God say to him? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And then he says, my power or my work is made perfect in weakness. See, God always uses sickness and suffering. It's never wasted. It's never pointless. He will either bring glory to himself by performing a miracle on behalf of one of his children, or he will bring glory to himself by making the miracle radical and dramatic endurance and grace in the midst of suffering. So Jesus says that this man's suffering was was to display the works of God. Verse 4, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me, While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
We've been studying the Gospel of John uh, in our church in Mississauga for the last several months. And one of the things you'll notice when you read the Gospel of John closely is Jesus' preoccupation with timing. His mother wants him to solve the wine problem at the wedding. And Jesus says, my hour has not, my hour hasn't come. And there's a number of other times where, where people tried to arrest Jesus and it says his hour hadn't come. And then a number of times Jesus uses this day and night analogy to talk about timing. And Jesus, is, he's telling his disciples, I don't want to be involved in these annoying theological conversations. We've got work to do. And he's saying, I'm running out of daylight. A couple of weeks ago, I was, you know, sort of in the middle of doing some, some, some yard work, and then I got a phone call, and I had to go run a couple of other errands, and then by the time I got back to my, uh, by the time I got back to my yard, it was already starting to get uh, dark, and uh, so I'm, I'm running around, and I'm, I'm hauling dirt, and I've got the wheelbarrow, I'm running around with the spreader and the seed like this, and my, my neighbors are probably laughing at me, but what was happening? I was running out of daylight. I wanted, I knew the reason why I was trying to plant grass seed, because I knew that it was going to rain early the next morning, and so I wanted that, I wanted that moisture to help the grass grow, but I, I had a limited amount of time. That's what Jesus is saying here. And but he, this is the great thing about the way Jesus talks, is because it doesn't end with the night. Like he's saying, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. <laughs> so he's saying, yeah, here's... Here's the daytime, but night is coming. And yeah, night, Good Friday, that's the cross. But there's another day after that night, right? Uh, three days later, he rose again, amen? And so there's another day. And then, and, then, then, and then he sent the Spirit. And so the work continues on. And so it's not as though Jesus just had a limited window to continue to work. He, he works and he continues to work. It's even amazing in verse 4 how he says, we must work. It's not just him doing the work. He's including the disciples and he sent his spirit and he is including us to be engaged in the work. Verse six, he says, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. You know, you walk into some people's homes and you see little uh, needlepoint crafts or a, a, a framed poster with a, with a Bible verse, you know, like Joshua 24, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord or, or I will bless the Lord at all times, Psalm 34. You know, in, in my house, I think we should have uh, John 9, verse 6. Uh, we have four uh, boys, age 10, 8, Six and three, and I mean, honestly, if I were to read this verse in my house, there would be an altar call. Every hand would be raised. Everyone would, sign me up, follow Jesus, okay? He spat. He spat in the dirt, and then he touched the dirt. And then he went and put it in somebody's face. I mean, that's amazing. That is so amazing. And so maybe that will be the theme verse for the Duncan family home. <laughs> well, what is really going on here? See, here's the amazing thing. Jesus is not merely the healer. He's the creator. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust from the ground. 
and breathed into his nostrils breath of life, and the man became a living creature, a creature who has been made by a creator. The prologue of John chapter one says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and by him all things were made. Nothing was made that wasn't made by him. He made it all. He is the creator. And so in spitting on the ground and using mud to heal this man, he's going back to the original raw materials that he used with his father in creating the first human being. And he's, he's pointing to the recreation that he has come uh, to bring about. And then he sends this man to the pool of Siloam. Verse seven, he said to him, go, Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Siloam means sent. He had just said in verse 4 that the father had sent him, and now he is sending this man to a pool called sent. Why did he send him there? A friend of mine visited Israel recently, and he visited the pool of Siloam. This is what it looks like uh, now. It's at the end of uh, a tunnel that King Hezekiah uh, had uh, built. And I was curious, I wanted to know. So he sent him, so they had just exited the temple and, and he wanted him to walk to the pool of Siloam. So I just, I kind of Google mapped how far it would be because these, these sites still exist. So the, the temple mount is up here and if he were to walk down to the pool of Siloam, it, it's about a kilometer and it would take a person about a 12 minutes to get there. Now imagine if Jesus put mud on your face and told you to walk up to Petro Canada there on Burl Oak. Now imagine, it, again, the Feast of Booths is happening, so there's, there's all of it. The streets are filled not just with people, but with these temporary shacks that people build as, as a way of uh, worshiping during that uh, religious festival. The place is absolutely crowded. And so here is this blind man trying to make his way through the city, and he's got something on his face. You know what it's like when you see someone and they have something on their face and you, you know they don't know it, right? And there's certain sort of, within, within the sort of social rules of our, our culture, there's certain, you know, ways that we tell people. <laughs> but how, how do you tell Someone who's visually impaired, clearly. Someone who, who cannot see. Someone who you've probably never spoken to. And do you, do you, do you enter in in that moment? Do you try to, to stop them and say, let, let, me, let me help you with that? And listen, so many people, listen, would have noticed. You see, here's what's going on. Jesus sent this man to the pool of Siloam, not just so that the man could see but so that everyone could see that the man could see. All around the temple, there's the Gihon Spring, there's a whole bunch of other, there's a whole bunch of other places where this guy could have got water, just like a, a few meters away. But he sent him to walk for a kilometer so that everyone would see him and wonder, what is going on? And why did Jesus want everyone to see? Well, listen, listen, Jesus did all kinds of miracles, but some, some of the miracles he did had also been done by some of the, the, the great leaders in the Old Testament in the past. I mean, when he fed the thousands of people in John chapter 6, they immediately made the connection between Jesus and Moses. Uh, Elijah and Elisha had, a, had so many miracles in their ministry. A lot of them were, 
were also done by Jesus. But listen, no one had ever opened the eyes of someone who had been born blind. But it was prophesied that when the Messiah came, that that these these predictions were made, that the telltale sign, that that, because there's all kinds of false pretend messiahs, but when the legit Messiah arrives, this is how you're going to know. Let me show you, just give you three quick examples from Isaiah 29. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 42, 7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This had never, this is unprecedented. You see, Jesus is at the point, he's done with the, my hour has not come now. He laid it all out there when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And so he is, he is going public with his claim that he is the son of God and that he is the Messiah. He wants everyone to know now. And so he, he sends this man on this, on this mission to display his miraculous transformation. Verse eight, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, see they, all, they had all seen saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So, so some people were sure it was him right away. Other people were thinking, no, 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 no. It, it's, it's his doppelganger. This is some sort of scam, you know. They're just, they're just, it's, it's just he's just a lookalike. It's a cousin. It's a twin brother. He kept saying, I am the man, verse 10. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. I happened to be blind the last time I saw him. Verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees. Now we're going to look at this from another angle, the Pharisees' religious interrogation. The Pharisees' religious interrogation. First, first note that they don't know what to call this guy. Uh, it says, uh, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. You see, we have, we have technical terms for just about everything these days, right? But there's, there's no real term to, to describe someone who was blind but is now no longer blind because that had never happened before. So he's the man who formerly had been blind and we'll call him the MWHFBB. Verse 14, this is an important detail. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. No, you can't be serious. No, 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 you, you, can't, you can't be serious, yeah. That's spitting on the ground and making mud. That counts as work on the Sabbath? 
Uh, loved ones, this is how ridiculous the Sabbath law was at the time. Not the biblical law of the Sabbath, but I mean the, the Pharisees' law of the Sabbath. In the Talmud, which is the sort of ancient collection of Jewish uh, writings and rules and regulations, uh, and this is the, the Shabbat uh, 7-2. Shabbat means Sabbath. It says, the primary labors are 40 less one. These are 39 things that you are not allowed to do on the Sabbath. I'm not going to read all of them. But right here is kneading, like dough. No one's making pizza on the Sabbath. And no one's making mud, apparently, either. And so they, they take issue, not that Jesus had broken a biblical Old Testament rule, but that, they had, that he had broken one of their rules. Verse, verse 15, it says, So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Well, he doesn't keep your Sabbath rules, but he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Keep reading in verse 16. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, he's really the man who had formerly been blind, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he, he said he is a prophet. So they're at such a loss. They're asking this uneducated beggar, can, can you help us figure out who Jesus is? And he guesses that he's, that he's some sort of prophet. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. They thought it was some sort of trick. They're, they're looking for the real blind guy and this is just a lookalike. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. This is referring not, not to all Jews in general. They were Jewish themselves. The, the, when John uses the, the phrase Jews, he's talking about uh, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. It says, they feared the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, if he is of age, ask him. There, there's an important lesson here from, uh, from the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees don't have the truth on their side. The truth is this guy has been healed. The only thing they still have is power. When you don't have truth but still have power... You use things like fear, like shaming, like social pressure and ostracization to keep yourself in power because you can't use the truth. And so here the, the Pharisees are using shame and social pressure and ostracization. If anyone, well, listen, every time we've had an argument with Jesus, Jesus has clearly won. And, and 
And he's got all this evidence to prove that he is who he says he is, but we don't want to accept the truth, so we're going to use social pressure and ostracization and shaming. If you believe in him, then you're kicked out of our group. You see, we never really grow out of grade six. If you're not, if you don't, talk like us, if you don't think like us, if you don't dress like us, then, then you're out of the club and you're on the outside and we're going to ostracize you and shame you and ridicule you and, and call you names. Listen, it was true for the religious leaders and elites in Jesus' day. Loved ones, it's true for the, for the academic and cultural and intellectual elites in our day. If you won't check our box, if you won't fit within our, our agenda, if you won't go with our tide, then we won't buy chicken from your restaurants, we won't make movies in your state, and we won't let you into our schools. When you don't have the truth, you rely on all that you've got left, which is shaming people, ostracizing people, pushing them off to the periphery. And these parents... These, these, these parents, remember the, the going theology at the time that the disciples thought, well, clearly this guy's blind because either he sinned or his parents sinned. His parents, no doubt, going to the temple time and time again, God, if I have sinned in any way that's caused our son to be like this, just please show me. I want to I wanna repent. I want to change. Now their son has been healed, but the social pressure is so strong. That they say this, and listen carefully when I read verse 23. Then his parents said, he is of age, ask him, thump, thump. Did you hear that? Listen, listen again. He is of age, ask him, thump, thump. Did you hear that? Did you hear that sound? He is of age, ask him, thump, thump. What is that, what is that thump, thump you hear when, when they say he is of age, ask him? That is the sound of his parents throwing him under the bus. Verse 24, so the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Again, they're relying on, on pressure. This is spiritual manipulation. They don't have the truth, but they're trying to pressure this guy because of their, because of their spiritual position. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This, this whole section of John 9, it's, it's sort of like a, it's like, like a courtroom drama. And uh, we, we talk about, as Christians, that we are called upon to be witnesses. And, and this, <laughs> this man who had formerly been blind is an eyewitness in the greatest sense of the word. And I just, I just love, I love the simplicity of what he says. He says, one thing I do know, one thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. In, in courtrooms today, there's, there's a, a great deal of emphasis on expert wits, witnesses, Someone who's, uh, you know, an, an, uh, an expert in, in forensics or, or someone who's an, an expert in whatever it may be, depending on what the case is, 
is about. And expert witnesses have a real role to play. And sometimes we think that in order to be effective as a witness as Christians, we too, we, we got to be expert witnesses. And we need to know all about societal trends and, and postmodern philosophy. And we need to know all about science and creation and, and the intersection of those two, of those two things. And we, we, we need to know about all, how all, we need, we need to be an expert if we're going to be a witness. Listen, ex, there's a place for expert witnesses. But listen, if you've got a court case that has a couple of rock solid eyewitnesses, that's better than any expert witness. And each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, listen, we may not know a whole lot, but we, we, we know what this guy knows. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Just to simply tell our story of how Jesus has transformed our lives. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? I love this. Do you also want to become his disciples? I'm not sure if he's being sarcastic or just innocent. Either way, it's hilarious. Verse 28, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, plus all the other laws you've added on to the law of Moses. Verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So he said one thing I do know, but he knew some more things. But he... Just take the reverse of what he said there in verse, verse 33. If he were not from God, he could do nothing. But he has done something. And the something that he's done is open the eyes of, of a man born blind. And so if he were not from God, he could do nothing. But he has done something, and the something is so incredible. So he must be from God. Verse 34, so they... They answered him, you were born in utter sin. It's that same theology the disciples had. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. See, but this is not fair. In verse 17, they said, who do you think he is? They're reviling him for trying to teach them, but they were the ones asking to be taught. And then it says, and they cast him out. His parents went to synagogue that weekend. His parents still enjoyed all of their social uh, connections, were, were still involved in the day-to-day -day life, but their son, whom they had prayed for for years and years and years, who had been miraculously healed and transformed, who was an outcast before and thought maybe... <laughs> during the, the couple hours that ensued after receiving sight, that he would no longer be an outcast. He just became an outcast of a different sort. Are you all in favor of um, Jesus coming back in this story? Did you miss him, by the way? 
One of the really odd things about, about uh, John chapter 9 is that 30 of the 41 verses, Jesus isn't even present. Like apart from the Christmas Advent stories, there's nothing like this in the Gospels where Jesus isn't even in the room. 75% of this story doesn't even have the Lord Jesus there. And when does he come? When does he show up? This is so classic Jesus. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. Isn't that Jesus? He's going after the outcasts. He went after the blind man the first, when he was first an outcast. He was just a topic of theological conversation and an example for the, for, the, for the disciples. And Jesus healed him. And now he's been cast out of the synagogue and Jesus goes after him. So now we're going to hear, we've heard from the blind man, we've heard from the Pharisee, that my third and final point is this, the, the Savior's spiritual interpretation. The Savior's spiritual interpretation. There was a, a movie that was, uh, it came out a couple of years ago in Europe. It was released last year in the U.S. I don't know if it ever made it to Canada. Don't bother seeing it. I don't think it's a very good movie. Uh, called Mary Magdalene. And um, it, it, I don't think it's biblically, biblically faithful really in any way. Some of the stories kind of kind of are kind of similar to, uh, to the biblical story. But the movie's kind of intriguing because Joaquin Phoenix plays Jesus. And uh, he, he nails the look. Um, but in sort of classic Joaquin Phoenix, unpredictable, dramatic fashion, when he arrived on the set to, to start filming... Um, there was a, they had, things came grinding to a halt because he was supposed to enact this miracle. The director had changed it from a blind man to a blind woman, but he didn't, he didn't want to put dirt in anyone's face. And this is what he had to say about it. I, I removed the swear words. He says, I knew about that scene from the Bible, but I guess I had never really considered it. When I got there, I thought, I'm not going to rub dirt in her eyes. It doesn't make any sense. That is a horrible introduction to seeing. That moment is not so much about a real miracle. It's about someone who has been dismissed by society finally being seen, embraced, and encouraged to join the broader community. To me, that is a miracle there's something profoundly beautiful about that sentiment. And there's something profoundly wrong with the way Joaquin Phoenix understands this story. He, he, this is just sort of classic secular humanist interpretation of, of the New Testament. That it, it wasn't a real miracle. Jesus didn't really feed thousands of people. A little boy shared his lunch and that, shared, that inspired everyone else to stop hiding their lunches and then everyone else shared. So the, 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 it's, it's not really about this person being healed. It's, it's not a real miracle. But listen, if there ever could be a miracle, 
that could be attested that this had to have happened, it's this one. Because immediately after it takes place, there is an intense investigation into the miracle. And the investigators are unashamedly biased. They don't want it to be true. But they can't prove that it's not true. So this is the most attested miracle, I think, in the New Testament. So the miracle did happen, but, but Joaquin, Joaquin Phoenix says it's, it's about someone who was outside of the community being welcomed into the broader community. Is that what happened to this man? No, he wasn't welcomed in. He was cast out, but it's Jesus who reaches out to him. And this is what he says. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, some people who are sort of of the Joaquin Phoenix School of Theology would say that when Jesus says Son of Man, he's talking like, you know what, like, like we're just the same. You know, son of God, that's sort of like an elevated title that lifts Jesus up to heaven. But son of man, that's just like, I'm just an everyday dude just like you. You know, I put my pants on uh, one leg at a time. But that's not what Jesus is getting at when he says son of man. Son of man is not a statement that brings Jesus down to earth. It's actually a statement that exalts Jesus to heaven. Because anyone that was remotely familiar with the Old Testament knew that the son of man is this glorious God-like being prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament, particularly in Daniel chapter 7. Let me show you. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. The the cloud, only God is present in the clouds. The clouds is a symbol of God's presence. And so this one is like a son of man, but is in the clouds like God. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. Riding on clouds, appearing before God the Father, all the nations and peoples and languages worshiping and praising him. When Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, he's not like, I'm the Son of Man. He's like, I am the Son of Man. It it, it doesn't bring him down to earth. It exalts him to heaven. Verse 36, the man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Isn't that amazing to say to the man who had been blind? Now, you have seen him. You are looking into his eyes right now. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Believe is the most important word in the gospel of John. Uh, John uses that word 98 times in 21 chapters, and he, he says at the end of the book, I wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John 3.16, the most important you know, or memorable verse in, in the gospel is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in everything hinges on believing 
And the man in verse 38 said, Lord, I believe. And then it says, and he worshipped him. Now again, if Jesus were saying son of man, just to try to say, you know, I'm just like you. I'm just an everyday guy. This would have been a great time for Jesus to tell the guy who was worshiping him to stop. Just like he should have told the Pharisees, you know, don't try to stone me because you've misunderstood me. I'm not claiming to be God. But he was claiming to, to be God. And so that's why he, like he does so many times, he receives worship from another human being. If Jesus were a good moral teacher, he wouldn't do that. So he worshiped him. Jesus said, verse 39, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who may see, or so those who see may become blind. That those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. What Jesus is saying here is He can't work with someone who thinks they don't need any help. When he talks about those who are blind, it's not merely those who are blind, but those who are willing to acknowledge that they're blind. Listen, if, if you are visually impaired, if you are blind but refuse to admit it, you are therefore a danger to yourself and to everyone around you. And Jesus says, I can't work. There's no cure for the person who thinks they don't need it. But I have come to help those who are blind and are willing to admit it. But those who claim that they can see, I am simply here to confirm that they are indeed blind. Verse 40, so one of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? So they're assuming that they can see. They're assuming that they don't need help. They understood what Jesus was saying. And then Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. Again, when he's saying blind, he's saying if you were willing to admit that you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. You know, it's, it's interesting. The Pharisees, they called Jesus a sinner in verse 24. They called the blind man a sinner in verse 34. But what was really needed was for them to admit that they were sinners. But they were blind. They were pointing the finger everywhere else, but couldn't see their own sin. Spiritual blindness is far more dangerous than physical blindness. Listen to how Paul Tripp sums this up. He says, spiritual blindness isn't like physical blindness. When you're physically blind, you know you're blind. So you compensate for this significant physical deficit. But spiritually blind people are not only blind, they are also blind to their own blindness. They think they see well. So the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of himself than he does. May this not be true of any of us. And so let's take a moment to close our physical eyes and spend some time asking the Lord Jesus by the power of his spirit to open our spiritual eyes.
And so Heavenly Father, I pray for myself, I pray for everyone who can hear the sound of my voice right now. Lord, I pray that by your mercy and by your grace that you would open our eyes, that you would allow us to see our sin. And if it's for the first time, Lord, then allow us to see our sin and a need for a savior. There are things that we have thought that we never should have thought. Things that we have said that we never should have said. Things that we have done that we never should have done, let alone all the things that we should have done but neglected to do. Lord, we are guilty sinners. And God, forgive us for judging your son to see if he's worthy of following rather than judging ourselves and recognizing that there's no hope apart from following him. And God, I pray that we would marvel, Lord, even those who have had their eyes opened years ago, decades ago, that we would see with fresh spiritual eyes what it means to be known and loved by a Savior. And that we would be able to say and to sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Amen. Amen.